This episode of the Ed Search Podcast is brought to you by PowerSchool. By combining Schoology's award-winning LMS with PowerSchool's education technology suite, PowerSchool connects everyone in your district. From the back office to the classroom to home, PowerSchool unifies your technology to keep learning going, even when the whole world stops. Learn more at homeroomtohome.com. That's homeroomtohome.com. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and editor here at EdSurge. Information literacy has long been hard to teach. Let's face it, the landscape of online platforms changes so fast these days. And during this COVID-19 pandemic, it can seem harder than ever to sort out reliable information from falsehood, rumor, and conspiracy. So today we're talking to two experts working to help educators and others sharpen their info literacy and critical thinking skills. Our first guest is someone we've had on the podcast before, Peter Adams, Senior Vice President of Education at the News Literacy Project. That nonprofit group provides professional development and online materials to help teachers understand and teach news literacy. When I talked to him last year, he offered some tips on basic news literacy, and we'll link to that episode on our show page. But I was curious to hear his thoughts and advice on how to manage this particular moment of the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, The pandemic has highlighted several important things um, about news and information literacy. Number one, just the stakes of information, right? It's the basis for the decisions we make and the actions we take. Um, And in the case of of something like a pandemic, that can translate into personal safety and safety of loved ones and those around you. Um, And I think it also sort of underscores some of the parallels between the physical virus and pandemic and the the so-called infodemic. Uh, just the surge of information, including a lot of misinformation, um, and how your information choices, just like your choices in the world, uh, have an effect on other people. So if I share a piece of misinformation about the coronavirus, and we saw a lot of these circulating in March and April, it's, it's sort of died down now. Um, false cures, false preventions, if people believe that, and they believe that they are actually not at risk because they've taken this step, Uh, or that they can sort of gargle the virus out of their throat. That was a rumor for a while with salt water. Not true. But if I uh, don't take precautions thinking I can do that and then I get sick or I get others around me sick, that can be very serious. So I think it underscores that uh, for folks uh, as well. Um, And then, you know, just, just really highlights how much misinformation is out there, right? And how many people are publishing information and some of the drawbacks Um, to our information environment um, and ecosystems. And then finally, I think it also drew a lot of attention to what platforms should or shouldn't do or can be doing or are doing well or need to do more of. So there's been a lot of conversation over the last three or four months um, uh, about community standards and content curation from the major social media platforms. And right away, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, uh, even Reddit, you know, stepped forward and said, we are going to surface authoritative information. We're going to drive people to health authorities, and that's great. But some other things they didn't do as well, right? Killing off uh, certain hashtags that were circulating uh, with conspiracy theories and misinformation. So things like that. So a wealth of topics really rushed to the fore here throughout the spring and into the summer. I saw on the on your website, on the News Literacy um, Project's website, there's a, a note that said, sanitize before you share as far as information. 
I thought that was an interesting. So that's what you mean by the parallels to the virus? Yeah, I mean, so one easy parallel to make is the, the hand washing to doing a quick check, right? If, if you take 20 seconds or 30 seconds, like a hand washing time period, to check out a piece of information or a claim or a rumor before you share it, that goes a long way to, to eliminating the spread of, of misinformation, right? And so practicing good, you know, quote unquote, information hygiene, um, which is a term that, uh, that Mike Caulfield at the University of Washington has talked about for a long time, uh, is really um, a kind of salient and easily available point for educators right now. Um, and then, you know, obviously the other parallel is, again, that your choices affect other people. And we're seeing that now with the mask debate where people say, you know, it's, it's my choice. Uh, I think Ted Nugent, you know, who's, who's a f bit of a far right provocateur online, uh, said that, uh, you know, if I'm not scared, I won't wear a mask. If you're scared, you stay in your house. I won't. Um, but what he's missing is that, that your choices with masks uh, and behavior affect other people. You know, the more this spreads, the more people get sick and the vulnerable among us, uh, it would be potentially fatal. And so the same is true of, of misinformation. Um, if you share things that aren't true, it can down, downstream of you affect other people quite a bit. Do you ever worry that it's become too hard almost to, for users, for individual users to you know, be taught in a way to, to take all the steps necessary um, to, to, to do it, to act responsibly and to sort through all this information that's fed to us these days. Yeah, I think this is something we talk about a lot as a team, you know, to obviously we, we get very deep in the weeds on a lot of these things and we, we figure out, you know, what can we offer teachers who who and 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 through them students who really want to go deep and go far and how do we make them experts in really diving into these topics in a nuanced way but from another perspective everything we do also has to enable teachers who who maybe don't have the time or or the interest to go that far with it but they want to provide a basic you know foundation so i think you know to our earlier point about so-called information hygiene um, there are some things that, that are pretty simple, right? Pause, monitor your emotions, take 20 or 30 seconds to search a term, recognize misinformation, misinformation patterns and tactics, you know, understand what bad actors are busy doing online. Um, uh, and, and so you can sort of recognize those actions and that can help, you know, empower students quite a bit. Um, getting deep on all the specifics of this and staying current on all the debates in journalism uh, and among social media companies, that's much, much, you know, more challenging. But I think there are some basics that are that are approachable that we can and should teach. After the break, one author hopes to improve on fact-checking websites with a new kind of tool. And he brings a more philosophical approach. Stay with us. COVID-19 has pushed schools and districts into a new era of learning. Parents don't have to go to a school building to enroll their students, but can now register from anywhere. Training your teachers and providing ongoing professional development no longer requires a conference room, but can happen virtually. Assessments don't need paper and pencil hand-ins, but can take place on the same digital platforms as learning. That's why PowerSchool, now with Schoology, provides education technology that can ensure the learning continues, whether it's in the classroom, at home, or a blend of both. 
flexibility is critical so that schools and districts can rapidly adjust to support all students' academic and emotional needs with continuity and ensure teachers are supported and trained to teach in any situation. PowerSchool can ensure that your district remains operational even when the school buildings have to close. Learn more at homeroomtohome.com. That's homeroomtohome.com. Now back to the episode. Our next guest gets philosophical about information literacy. He's Jonathan Haber, an education consultant, researcher, and author working at the intersection of K-12, higher ed, and education technology. His latest book is called Critical Thinking Essentials, and it was just published by MIT Press. He argues that fact-checking websites that have popped up in recent years have a limited impact on really helping people sort through information, especially in this time of the pandemic. So he's developed a free online tool called Logic Check, which brings a broader set of critical thinking tools to sorting through tweets and online posts. Fact-checking alone is not going to get us to understanding. There was a a well-known philosopher, Gary Gutting, who pointed out that facts are important, but they just serve as the premises in an argument. You can't understand if those premises, even if they're true, might be leading to a false or misleading inclusion, unless you understand the logic underlying an argument. And so I tried to illustrate that through a new site, which is primarily educational, even though it's also analyzing current affairs. So it's, it's got a sort of news analysis component uh, also. And what I tried to do is model it after existing uh, fact-checking sites. So make sure it was nonpartisan, make sure I was very transparent about uh, you know where I was coming from with the project. But the basic idea is to uh, understand the news, not just by understanding if facts are true or false, that's very important, but there's a lot of people doing a good job on that, but understanding some of the critical thinking principles that help you comprehend the news, uh, not just understand the premises behind the news. Yeah, I guess, could you give an example of this idea of fact-checking isn't enough? Because I do feel like, you're right, there's a lot of fact-check sites, I think we see that, and there's been a lot of talk about the importance of things like fact-checking public figures like the president when you know if president trump makes a misstatement how does how can people correct that or should you correct that there's been a lot of talk about facts whether they're correct or not so that it does suggest to i think a lot of people that well if you have your facts straight then you're fine why aren't why isn't facting fact checking enough and can you give an example yeah uh example i've used before is you know imagine some variant on an argument such as, you know, we've been in lockdown for months and COVID deaths are continuing, you know, clearly social distancing isn't working. Okay, now we have heard variations on that argument uh, over the last two or three months when we've all been in lockdown. And if you break that argument into premises leading conclusion, you know, the premises are we've been in lockdown for several months and another premise would be that COVID deaths have been going up during that time. And so the conclusion is social distancing isn't working. The, the lockdown and the measures we're taking aren't working. And if you look at the premises of those arguments, they're both true, right? We have been locked down for several months and COVID deaths have been going up. And so if you just fact checked it, the facts would, would check out, right? The premises are all true. So it's not a problem with the facts, it's a problem with the inference that leads from the facts to the conclusion. Right. If you understand social distancing measures and other measures were designed to flatten the curve, it meant it didn't. They didn't promise that uh, that 
social distancing would lead to an end to coronavirus deaths immediately. In fact, if you understand flattening the curve, you'd understand it was going to spread out over more time, but it would decrease the, the uh, any number of cases at one point of time that it wouldn't overwhelm the health system. Okay, so there's a very clear example where fact-checking would point out that the facts, the premises are true, but as we can tell, there's something wrong with that argument. And what's wrong with the argument is the logic behind it and not the facts themselves. And I, I would make a case that one of the reasons fact-checking, powerful and important as it is, but hasn't really kind of made a difference in rational understanding the news is that fact-checking only does part of the story, you know, and we don't know how to logic check the news, or most people don't, and that's really what the mission of logic check was and is. So how does it work, your, this logiccheck.net? Well, it's really teaching a series of critical thinking principles that go back to, you know, my recent book with MIT Press and also uh, Critical Voter, which was both a podcast uh, many years ago and, and more recently a book, and that there's a set of critical thinking skills you need to apply to understand not just the news, but any uh, issue, any decision you make, you know, professional, personal, there's just a set of critical thinking tools, a critical thinking tool set. So one of those is logic. I just gave you an example of a form of logic called informal logic, where I took a prose statement, you know, a exclamation about COVID and lockdown, and I translated that into a premises leading conclusion that I could then use to analyze the strength of the argument. So that's one set of tools is logic. And there's different tools you could use even to uh, analyze things logically. And so the site and the site, I use that to analyze very ar various arguments. You know, for example, is uh, was Pete Buttigieg too young to be a president? Uh, were other candidates too old? Um, was, uh, you know, the Sanders campaign doomed from the start, right? That was an argument I analyzed. Uh, is the panic about coronavirus more high risk than the disease itself? So those are all analyzed using the tools of logic, but there's other tools as well. You know, I've most recently analyzed news based on the issue of consistency. That in fact, many of the things that we sort of, of appreciate and or are hostile to are based on consistency. Yeah, that's, that's, why, that's why we dislike politicians who seem like they're hypocritical because they're not behaving consistently. Uh, there's other tools. There's sort of Aristotle's modes of persuasion. There's visual tools for analyzing logic, tools like argument maps and toolman diagrams. So what I'm really doing is sort of going, marching through the critical thinkers toolkit and using the news of the day to teach how to use these tools, how to apply them in real world situations. It feels like doing going to these fact check sites going to logic check it seems like a lot of work it's is it too much work to expect a typical person the average citizen to do frankly well you know i, I guess like like the fact checking sites and groups involved with civics education you know fundamentally this is a project about making democracy work um you know in my latest uh, mit book i actually trace the origins of critical thinking, right? The concept that there's this distinct form of thinking unique enough to be called critical and, and trace it back to a book by John Dewey written in 1910 called How We Think. And this was sort of can th think of as being paired with uh, his democracy and education in that, you know, he really believed, he had a fervent belief in democracy. And he also believed in an era when people were saying, um, 
democracy couldn't work. We really had to be ruled by experts because the public couldn't be expected to do the work, to understand all the things they would need to understand and understand the way to think about uh, issues um, that, that they couldn't be counted on to do it. We need to rely on experts. We need technocracy. And, and, and Dewey rejected that. And I guess, you know, I do as well that I think the uh, things we need to learn, they're not trivial, but they're not that hard. In fact, you know, many people who teach for a living, they understand subjects, be it math or science, that are far more complicated than the rules of logic you need to be a critical thinker, right? You need experience doing it, but anybody could do it. So really, you know, that's my mission is to give people the tool set. And it's, it's kind of like, uh, once you think this way, you know, then it becomes much easier to kind of see what's really going on, to sort uh, truth from fiction. And yes, sometimes it's difficult to ascertain, you know, which facts are correct or what sources to believe. But frankly, I would say it's much harder to live in a world where, you know, you and everybody is at best confused, at worst, thinking they know something and acting on that when they really don't. I think, you know, a lot of the sort of, of most negative responses to the various crises we've dealt with over these last six months have to do with not thinking critically, not knowing how to use this tool set. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate. So I think, you know, we should just assume, well, you know, government is probably not going to solve the misinformation problem for us, right? Because many of the people who in power got into power by taking advantage of, you know, flaws in human reasoning, you know, sort of, of the, the ability through social networks and things to broadcast incorrect information. And I think it's unrealistic to think, you know, Google is going to rescue us or Facebook, right? They, they make money by getting our eyeballs uh, to stay on the screen, right? They're, it's not in their interest necessarily to get us to think critically. So fundamentally, if we want to make this democracy work, it's going to end up being up to us. We're the last line of defense. We have the ability to sort fact from fiction. We have the ability to think not just critically, but log logically, but critically about the news. And unless we do so, we're going to just see more of the same. Yeah, I think it's interesting your point about the, you know, in other words, even if it is hard or it takes a little effort by by everyone to, to do their part to, to be a critical thinker as they are, you know, consuming in this information age we're in. But the alternative is to rely on experts, or what is the alternative? So you're, it's essentially, as as hard as it might be, the alternatives are not anywhere near as as attractive, at least in in the the narrative of America, anyway. Yeah, if if you go back, you know, sort of even be before Dewey, you know, uh, you could trace this sort of concept back to another philosopher, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, who uh, was the father of American pragmatism, the only school of philosophy that as its origin in the United States or major school. Uh, but he outlined uh, four different ways you can form beliefs around the about the world. You know, one is you can just believe what you already believe, right? This is sort of confirmation bias. This is the equivalent of sort of tribal uh, politics. Everybody sort of perceiving the news through the lens of what they already want to believe. You know, oh, you know, COVID cases are breaking out or increasing. Which state is it in? You know, what's the party affiliation of the governor? You know, it's all the governor's fault. It's spiking in another state. And, you know, you don't sort of dislike the party that runs that state. You might change your perception of, of actual data, which is 
you know, can be looked at objectively, you know, so that's uh, called a priori thinking. That's one unproductive way of unproductive way of thinking. Another unproductive way of thinking is through authority, right? You just be believe what you're told from authority figures. You know, we could be ruled by technocrats or a priesthood or, you know, some, somebody up on high will tell us what to believe. Uh, that too is an unproductive way of thinking if your goal is to get to the truth. You can also rebel against uh, authority, right? That's called tenacity. Whatever authority is telling you, you believe the opposite. Okay, and all three of these are very natural ways of thinking and there's actually a time and a place for them, right? We're both parents. So in fact, authority is useful in some cases. Um, you know, but if, if your goal is to get to the truth or closer to the truth, then Peirce recommended science as a model, uh, which uh, holds understanding to be contingent as we sort of get closer and closer to the truth. Uh, and sort of Dewey completed that by just uh, tying it to all subjects, not just science. There's no subject we can't think about uh, logically. And our job is to train ourselves, you know, and, and teach students and also, you know, train our children, live our lives to choose to think in a sort of more productive, critical fashion, rather than relying on these other modes of thinking, which, you know, while they may have their place, they're, they're not doing us much good uh, in the present circumstances. And, you know, they're, they're not particularly useful, again, when you're trying to make choices, particularly important choices, based on what is real. I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are. You mentioned the history of critical thinking, but what do you feel, how did we get here to a place where we need so much fact-checking and logic-checking? What, because it, I mean, is it, did we always need it maybe or, <laughs> and we just didn't have it? Or is there something about this moment that has led to this? Well, there certainly wasn't a golden age when everyone was thinking critically or we term now crit thinking critically and we've fallen off from that. Um, you know, I, I would say in the past, really actually through most of recorded history, you know, logic was the core subject in all education going back, you know, hundreds, even thousands of years. But as the curriculum expanded with new subjects coming online, language, culture, science, uh, you know, new forms of mathematics, that, that the old subjects, logic, rhetoric, that got sort of pushed off the agenda. And, and understandably so, but it does mean, you know, people just don't generally learn logic unless you take a course in it in uh, college, for example. So um, that's been sort of, of, we've been cut off from our, that, those sort of ancient knowledge. Um, you know, I would say some of the issues that Dewey was contending with in the early 20th century, you know, those are debates were over the fact that society just gotten so much more complex. And even in the earliest 20th, earliest 20th century, uh, people were recognizing, you know, that that America cannot be run uh, at the village level, right? That that um, government was was becoming more centralized. Decisions were being were made more complex. You know, simply by the fact that you know this conversation we're having right now is facilitated through technology powered by electricity, you know, run over an internet, all managed by people we have never met through technology we don't understand. So, you know, by its very nature, uh, a modern society requires us to accept certain, um, you know, management um, by experts. I think, you know, probably the biggest change in the last 10 years since I've been really kind of covering 
you know, politics from a critical thinking perspective is the, um, you know, the changes in the internet. I think when the internet first uh, appeared, we, there was high hopes for it uh, as a sort of dem democratizing institution. Uh, there was this notion that, you know, citizen journalism and, you know, publications like, like EdSurge, uh, but even, you know, uh, some of the blogging like I do at, at logiccheck.net, that was all powered by the internet. And that's still, that it was and still is wonderful. But I think over the last particularly 10 years, we've seen a sort of darker side where misinformation and sort of tribal thinking, you know, sort of mob mentality, uh, fake news, you know, all that is being disseminated through the same internet. And it seems to be uh, disseminating faster than the truth can catch up. So I'd say if, if we're in a different position now, we've always sort of felt a little bit uneasy in the fact that so much of our life is now in the hands of experts who we've never met who understand things we don't know. But I think, you know, now we are in a position to uh, pretend we know things we don't, you know, through uh, the fact that we have, you know, the Library of Alexandria in our pocket, but we don't have the tools to filter that, to sort fact from fiction. Uh, and then, and we don't have the tools to do something with those facts, to work them into logical arguments, to think critically about them. I think that's probably the biggest difference. Would you argue that there needs to be a logic class, you know, at the K-12 level, say, or for every, that everyone should take something like a logic class? Well, this is actually a whole section of the new uh, MIT book is dedicated education. Because, you know, as you know, um, you know, I've been working in education quite some time. You and I met back, you know, when we were both sort of, of writing the first and second book on MOOCs. Uh, right. So education and the democratization of education has always been uh, kind of a key mission. Um, I think, you know, there's actually been quite a bit of research on what is the best way to teach critical thinking. Uh, and there's sort of three models. You know, one is a teaching a uh, standalone course on critical thinking. You know, this is how we teach critical thinking largely in college. You know, in many colleges, there's a distinct critical thinking course. It's uh, often taught by members of the philosophy department. In some places like the California state system, it's a required course. Everyone, no one can graduate without taking a course in critical thinking. So that's called the general approach to critical thinking. Then in K-12 mostly, we use a process called immersion where critical thinking is folded into the existing subjects, you know, English, math, social studies, science, like the core four, but all subjects. If you look at standards, you know, the common core standards, next generation science standards, most state standards, they all emphasize critical thinking. Okay, but it, when it's taught, it's sort of taught through this technique I mentioned called immersion, where it just assumed that uh, when smart teachers are teaching complex material, that critical thinking is sort of coming along for the ride. Uh, and because, and as it turns out, that's actually the least effective way to teach critical thinking. The most effective way to teach critical thinking, even more effective than teaching a standalone general critical thinking course, uh, is called the infusion method, where you still include critical thinking in other content. You teach critical thinking when you're teaching English, you teach critical thinking when you're teaching math, science, etc. but you do so explicitly. You know, the example I use is the geometry teacher, when they teach geometric proofs, they're actually teaching a form of, of reasoning, a form of deductive logic, which is an important critical thinking topic. But how many math teachers stop and say, 
by the way, you know, you've just learned deductive logic. Let me explain what that is. Let me show you how it's been applied here in geometry. And by the way, let me show you how you could apply it to a subject outside of geometry. You know, that's the um, infusion method. And, and research has sort of shown, uh, seems to show that that's the most effective way of teaching critical thinking. I still come away feeling how big this challenge is and how important it is for democracy that new tools and education methods do get out there. The internet, after all, is still a really new concept in the sweep of history. And things like Twitter and Facebook are even newer. They definitely did not come with an instruction manual. This has been the EdSurge podcast. Each week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you don't already, we hope you will subscribe to the EdSurge podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or share it on one of those social media platforms. We are in a planning mode for the podcast, um, thinking ahead a bit, and we are looking to follow a couple professors um, throughout the fall semester and hear their stories along the way of how teaching in campus life is going. If you are a faculty member who would be interested in participating, which would essentially involve talking to me uh, several times throughout the semester to give an update on how things are going for you, please reach out to me at jeff at edsurge.com. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can follow me on Twitter at JR Young. Thanks, as always, to our managing editor, Tony Wan, and the rest of our scrappy newsroom. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening. Thank you.